Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, February 10th, we are studying Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. The Pharisees and the scribes gather around Jesus yet again to challenge the way that his disciples are failing to keep the law in the way that they think should be done. Jesus' rebuke of their hypocrisy is quite stinging. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Tim Stork. Pastor Stork serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Chesterfield Township, Michigan. Pastor Stork, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. It's great to be back. So we get started this morning, Pastor Stork. Let's talk a little context. We're beginning Mark chapter 7 today. What do we need to know about the gospel as a whole and the immediate context that will help us into this text? Sure. Um, the Gospel of Mark is unique in, out of the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, Mark is, of course, the shortest one. Um, it is the most condensed out of the three of them. And the thing that I love about Mark's Gospel is the immediacy. Um, so often as you read through Mark at each of the beginning of the sections, he starts with that very word, immediately. Um, moving us quickly from one event to another, um, and especially then into the latter half of Mark's Gospel, where he does spend quite a bit of time talking about our Lord's last week um, during his time of um, suffering, and then, of course, his resurrection from the dead. Um, but specifically for our text today, we pick up right after Jesus heals the sick in the area of Gennesaret. Um, he has just gotten done as many people came and touched even the fringe of his garment, um, word made well. And now we find him, as you said in the introduction, again confronted by the Pharisees who have much to question about Jesus and his teaching. It's rather striking when you put these two texts side by side, the end of Mark 6 and then the beginning of Mark 7, where you have a positive reaction to Jesus there in Gennesaret as people are flocking to him. They're recognizing who Jesus is, at least that he can heal them. And then here come the Pharisees and scribes. And it, it's like they're completely missing these things that Jesus is doing. And they're focused on a very, very particular aspect of what he isn't doing, focus particularly in his disciples. As we're going to see in this text, some of the criticisms that they had of Jesus previously are going to surface again, which again, just trying to, to put it all together, back in chapter two and three, that's where the opposition to Jesus from the scribes and Pharisees was really starting to grow. He spent some time teaching. Chapter five was full of those wonderful miracles where Jesus cast out the demon on the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee, where he raised Jairus's daughter from the dead, where he healed the woman with the issue of blood. He's done all these fantastic miracles for people to see. 
chapter six brought us down a little bit with the unbelief that faced Jesus, even from his own disciples at time. Now we're going to come back and here come the Pharisees again. It's like they just missed all of the great stuff that Jesus is doing. And all they can see is how he doesn't keep the law the way they think he should. It's just, it's such a contrast in, in what, what we get. Oh yeah. It's, it's so interesting that you bring that up. The fact that here Jesus has been showing his love to all of these people, whether it's the sick in Gennesaret, whether it's um, driving out the, the man with the demon back in chapter five, healing the woman, um, raising Jairus's daughter, all of these acts of love and compassion that Jesus is showing um, to these people and to his disciples and, and to us, the readers and hearers of his word. And then we get to the Pharisees and they completely miss the love and compassion. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that they seem to focus on or to be stuck on in a way is how Jesus isn't, or at least the disciples aren't keeping the minutia of the law. Mm-hmm. If you don't do this exact thing, it's almost like to them, none of the rest of it really matters. Hmm. I, I like the way that you, you say that about that they, they haven't seen the love and compassion of Jesus, which I think fits very well with the way that they actually look at the law itself. They don't see the love and compassion that God intends for the neighbor in the law. They're simply looking at keeping of the law by the letter. And, and as Jesus will say, they end up missing what the law actually says and replace it with something different. But I, I think those things are related, that they've mm-hmm. they've missed the love and compassion in the law. And so they, they just don't have a place in, in what they think for what they're seeing from Jesus. And I think those two things go hand in hand. Definitely. Um, you know, as you saw back in um, Mark chapter 2, when the Pharisees first come and confront Jesus and the disciples about eating. And Jesus reminds them that, um, how does he put it exactly? I want to make sure I say it just the way it says it in the text. Um, Where Jesus says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Um, for those, as their disciples, as his disciples were going and picking heads of grain, and the Pharisees were complaining, "Look, what are they doing on the Sabbath? Isn't lawful?" Um, the disciples were hungry; they they needed something to eat, um, and apparently, you know, plucking heads of grain to be able to eat to fill their bellies was unlawful for them in the perspective that you know we have to keep the minutia of the law. And it's better, I guess, from the Pharisees' perspective to go hungry than it was to eat. Right. And then, I mean, it is, it's striking that there at the end of Mark 2 and here again in chapter 7, it is a matter of eating that's going to come into play. I think, too, the very next text after that Sabbath controversy, it's still the Sabbath. And Jesus is even more poignant in the way that he brings that question to them. There's this man there with the withered hand and Jesus asks them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And and they're just silent. They have nothing to say 
Jesus is grieved at their hardness of heart before actually doing the good that is intended on the Sabbath and healing that man. And and all those same issues really seem to come into play here again in an extended discourse. Uh, we're going to look at the first part of this text today, verses 1 through 13, and then what we pick up tomorrow in verses 14 and following, and the matter of clean and unclean is, is very much related. But but all of that, I think, really sets the stage for what we're going to get from Jesus in the text for today, which is Mark 7, beginning at verse 1. We read, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, to Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do." That is the text for today, Mark 7, verses 1 through 13. Pastor Stork, help us with the setting of this text. We were saying previously in Mark 6, Jesus was in Gennesaret healing people there. Where do we find Jesus at the beginning of this text? Well, Mark doesn't give us a whole lot of details on that. In fact, he just says, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, and so... The interesting thing, though, about Mark is the fact that we never find the Pharisees traveling to Gentile lands in Mark's gospel. So we are someplace away from the the areas of the Gentiles um, back to a a setting that apparently the Pharisees are comfortable with. Um, You know, it just popped into my mind. kind of makes me think that here Jesus is coming back to territory that is not very um, not very welcoming to him. Um, you know, it's almost like he's come back to the territory of those people, of the enemies in a way, the mm-hmm. people who seek him out to, to destroy him, which is exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes are trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, stepping foot back into their territory, he's going to show them exactly what he has to say in regards to what the scriptures say and what the law and the gospel are all about. 
Mark has already told us that the Pharisees are out to destroy Jesus. That happened already back at the beginning of of chapter 3, verse 6, where he said the Pharisees tried to destroy Jesus or plotted how to destroy Jesus with the Herodians. So we know that when they show up here again, they're, they're up to no good. They're not out to be Jesus' friends here. And they're looking with the scribes, and they see something that Jesus' disciples are doing. It does go along with eating again, which we talked a little bit about in chapter two, that Jesus' disciples there are plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. That issue focuses more on what they're doing on the Sabbath. Here, the eating, Mark tells us, it has to do with the fact that their hands are, and the way the ESV reads is defiled, that is unwashed, which this sounds like it's more than the Pharisees, you know, they're, it's more than when your mom tells you to go wash your hands before you eat supper, it sounds like. What's the what's the concern of the Pharisees here? Yeah, so the concern of the Pharisees here is a matter of cleanness and uncleanness. Um, you see it throughout the Old Testament where we see the regulations from um, Leviticus and Deuteronomy in regards to how the, the high priest is supposed to be clean um, before taking care of the task that he has been given to do. And so it's very similar in a way to that. Um, what they are concerned about is that the people who are eating have clean hands. Um, to be unclean meant to be common or to not be set apart, not holy as God is. Now, the thing that's interesting, though, about that understanding of cleanness is that it doesn't mean that you are evil or opposed to God, which means that for the Pharisees, this is a matter of the the believing Jew. So they wouldn't be so much concerned about this matter of unwashed or undefiled or a Gentile, for example. But they would definitely be concerned about a believing Jew, like the disciples, um, that they wouldn't be fit by being defiled or unwashed. Um, They wouldn't be fit for contact with the sacred. Um, So things that have been set apart or certain foods that may have been set apart without washing your hands, you would not have been able to eat those types of foods. It, it strikes me here, and I'd like to hear if you can help me sort of connect the dots, because I've been trying to do this in my mind a little bit, where Mark says, you know, these their hands were defiled, that is, they're unwashed. The Greek there is not the same as when Mark tells us about the unclean spirits that Jesus has dealt with a couple times here in this gospel, and back in Mark 1 and then in Mark 5, the casting out of demons, they're called unclean spirits. And it, it's not the same not the same Greek word that's used there in Mark 1 and 5 as it is here when it talks about these defiled or unwashed hands. But I wonder if there's, I wonder if there's a connection, and I'm not, not exactly sure how to draw it at this point. As you were talking, one of the things that, it, that was coming through my mind was that maybe the, what's going on with the Pharisees is that they're missing the real enemy here. They think that it, this matter of washing hands is what's going to make them clean or unclean. And Jesus has a really much a bigger enemy in mind, which is the devil who is opposed to the, the reign and rule of God. And, and they're being distracted by this matter of, of unwashed hands. 
And again, I know we're not looking at, at everything Jesus is going to say about this clean and unclean matter and what really defiles a person. Some of that's going to come at tomorrow's text. But I'm trying to connect those two things, I, but I'm not sure if I'm quite there. you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's interesting. Like you said, the, the word for unclean um, from the, the demons or even the point where they um, are claiming that Jesus has a demon, um, that he is in league with Beelzebub himself. Um, And I think that there really is a sense of, I don't know how to put it, Um, you know, that if you aren't doing these certain things, if you aren't making yourself ritually unclean, that there may have even been more of a sense for the Pharisees of not being a part of God's Hmm kingdom, um, that they may have seen it in in a little bit of a wider sense, um, that by not keeping the minutia of the law or keeping these other regulations that, you know, maybe you aren't really a part of it. Hmm. Um, but it is, it's a really interesting, um, really interesting thought, you know, yeah, and I think, I mean, it, well, keep going, keep going. Go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say, no, I mean, go ahead. It, after this section, and again, I'm talking about what we're looking at today and what we'll look at tomorrow, there's going to be the woman of Tyre and Sidon who will come to Jesus with a daughter who, again, has this unclean spirit. And again, not the same word for unclean, but it, it just seems like Mark is inviting us to try to to try to put those pieces together that, and again, just the, the best that I can do at this point, and maybe hopefully as, as we continue to talk day tomorrow, the, the next couple of days, this will become more enlightened. It, the best that I can think right now is that the Pharisees are, are focused on the wrong kind of uncleanness. They're focused on an outward uncleanness and there's a, a bigger uncleanness, which I think Jesus is going to get to in the text for tomorrow. And then there's even this enemy that's out there who is the fullness of uncleanness, Satan and his demons, and, and that those those latter two uncleanness, the the one that comes from within, and the one that comes from without, the the devil and his demons. That's what Jesus has come to to combat by bringing the kingdom of God. I don't, that's that's just me sort of talking through it right now. Yeah, yeah, I I think you're exactly right, Pastor, um, and. The interesting thing is the fact that, like you said, they are more, the Pharisees are more focused on this uncleanness of of hands, uncleanness of pots and vessels and dining couches, as as Mark remarks here in in his gospel, rather than being concerned about the heart, being concerned about um, the, the work of the devil in the world and, and the demons that have come to, to plague the, the kingdom of God and, and to try and attack the kingdom of God. And again, the fact that they seem to miss wholly what is important and what their people need to know and, and hear. Instead, they're being focused upon these you know regulations, um, these traditions that really are not going to cleanse the heart. 
So as you mentioned, Mark gives us this note in verses three and four. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't put parentheses around it as I was reading it out loud. But if you look at it in most English translations, verses three and four will often be set aside in parentheses. Mark pulls us aside for a second and explains a little bit more this matter of defiled or unwashed hands. First of all, the fact that Mark takes the time to do that, what might that indicate to us about Mark and his audience? Yeah, again, most likely Mark's audience does not have a Jewish background, or at least not a a Jewish background that would know the ins and outs of the traditions of um, of the fathers back, you know, going to to Moses' day, um, and the fact that you know Mark would need to explain to his hearers this is what we're talking about, so that it makes sense when Jesus further goes on to explain why he is so upset with the regulations that the Pharisees have. With this parenthetical note then that Mark gives to add some explanation, what's there for us? What what background does he give us here in verses three and four that we need to know that, that helps us understand what the conflict is? Yeah, so for example, um, he first tells us that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. Now, when we hear that tradition of the elders, we have to remember first off what it's not. We're not talking about the Ten Commandments. We're not talking about the law that is written down in the first five books of the Bible. What we are talking about here is this oral tradition that the Pharisees and those from before them believed had been handed down by God, orally, but not written down until later on, and was actually used to um, protect the law in a way. Later on, um, one of the great historians of the early church, Josephus, he puts it this way. He says, now I want to make plain that the Pharisees handed down some customs to the people from the school of the fathers that are not read in the law of Moses. And on account of this, the group of the Sadducees rejects them, saying that only those things do they deem necessary, namely regulations that are written down. But the things that are from the traditions of the fathers, they deem it necessary not to try to observe them. And so we have these traditions what is ultimately called the Mishnah, um, that again is believed to be handed down from Sinai, given to Joshua, to the elders, and to the elders of the prophets. And the Mishnah were made up of three things. Um, Be deliberate in judgment, raise up disciples, and make a fence around the law. And it's that third one that is extremely important here is that understanding of making a fence around the law. Um, And so Mark, again, explains this to us. He says, holding to the tradition of the elders, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. 
Um, so we can see that this goes from just beyond washing your hands, but it also goes to observances such as making sure that the cups and the pots and the vessels that you use, including your dining couches, um, were traditionally washed to be used to, um, to be able to eat um, or apparently to, to lie on when you're getting ready for dinner. Since you since you said it that way, Pastor Stark, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to that one right away. You you emphasized dining couches, and I think I know where you're going with this, but I'll I'll let you take us there. Why did you emphasize the washing of dining couches? Yeah, so the word that is often times used in the Greek here in Mark chapter seven is the very same word that we have for baptism, baptizo. Um, and so you have this understanding that washing your hands, we can look at it from the perspective that, yes, you could immerse your hands into water and wash them that way. We could say the same thing about cups and pots and even copper vessels, that you could immerse them. But I'm not sure that you'd be able to immerse dining couches Um I'm not sure how many, you know, Pharisees would have had pools large enough to be able to dip their dining couches in, or even large pillows, if that's what they were leaning on. Which, again, when you look at that word baptism, is the same word that we use, it's the same word that our Lord uses when he commands us to be baptized. And if baptism is not necessarily how much water we use or the application of water. It it ultimately is the fact that water is used with the word of God when we are talking about baptism for the forgiveness of our sins. And so whether you would be sprinkling water, whether you would be immersing someone or something in water, or even pouring water on someone that word baptism can be used for all of those different meanings. Yeah, I mean, what we I wanted just to to make clear that we're not saying that the Pharisees were baptizing in the in the sense of the way we use that word as Christians, but the the usefulness of this text when it does come to baptism is that there are those among us today who who might consider that the word baptize in the Greek in and of itself means to immerse. And and they would say that that Greek word, baptizo, has to mean immerse. And a text like this is useful to show, well, no, the word baptizo simply means to wash with water, to apply water in the best way possible, such that when it comes to Christian baptism, then for us, it's not about the amount of water, but it is about the the water and the word being used according to God's command and according to his promise. And so a verse like this is just a helpful way to, to back that up to those who would say you have to be immersed or it doesn't count. I want to come back to that thought of the tradition of the elders, but we're going to do that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, February 10th. We're looking at Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. We have Pastor Tim Stork with us. He serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Chesterfield Township, Michigan. Pastor Stork, prior to the break, we were looking at Mark's explanation of the conflict that has arisen, why this matter of defiled, unwashed hands is important to the Pharisees and the scribes. And you mentioned how they are drawing not from the Ten Commandments or the five books of Moses. They are drawing from their oral laws that have been passed down. And for the Pharisees, for the scribes, and for many of the Jews of that day, they would have heard these things as having been given by God himself, even though they weren't written down. But Mark calls it the tradition of the elders. Jesus will use similar phrasing when we get to his words later in this text. That sounds like a, a bit of a, a slight that Jesus and Mark are both giving to these traditions. Yes, I, I definitely agree. Um, Mark and Jesus both want to show that these traditions are are not on the same level as the Ten Commandments or the the written law that God has given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And the fact that the Pharisees and the scribes and the other leaders have, have in a way, lifted these up to the same type of level as the Ten Commandments and the written law takes the focus off of what is ultimately really important. And I, I think that goes back to, you know, what we talked about at the beginning of the program today is the fact that Jesus is concerned about love for our neighbor. And instead, the Pharisees are more concerned about this cleanliness of hands and pots and dining couches and making sure that they keep the this tradition um, to make themselves clean rather than looking to God, looking, um, coming to him in repentance and finding hope and, and love in him. With that explanation of what's going on in place, Mark returns to the narrative in verse five. And the question that's presented to Jesus by the Pharisees and the scribes makes perfect sense with that background information. They ask, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Again, as we mentioned back in chapter two, Jesus was criticized by this same group of people because of what his disciples were doing, by what he was letting his disciples do. Here they ask him again. And Jesus, then the rest of the text is his answer. And he he starts by quoting from Isaiah the prophet but he, partic- he has a particular label for the Pharisees and scribes. He calls them hypocrites, which is one of those words that I, I think gets tossed around a lot, not just in the church, but in our culture at large. But I don't know that we always know really what that word means, or maybe we don't always use it correctly. So 
Help us to understand what Jesus is saying to these people when he calls them hypocrites. Yeah, I've, I love how um, what the word means in, in the classical Greek, it, it actually gives a whole different sense, I think, to, to the word hypocrite when we read it. In, in classical Greek, that word hypocrite was an actor. It meant playing, uh, playing a speaking part on a stage. Um, and so you are exaggerated as an actor. Um, which, in a way, in regards to what Jesus is about to say here from, from Isaiah, and then what he's going to speak to them about in the, the second half of this um, reading from Mark chapter 7, this is exactly what they're doing. They're, they're playing a part. Outwardly, they are saying one thing. Inwardly, they're doing something completely different which is exactly what an actor does. Outwardly, they play a part, um, and hopefully, if they're a good actor, they do it well. It's convincing. Everyone believes them. But inwardly, in their heart, they may not believe any of the things that they say or do, which is exactly what the Pharisees are doing here. They're, they have become, they've become actors. Outwardly, they are keeping the traditions of man, but inwardly in their hearts, I guess the, the question could be asked, do these men really believe? And, and I think Jesus answers that question with this quotation from Isaiah, which is the, the bulk of 6 and 7. Isaiah writes, as Jesus quotes him, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Where do we find this in Isaiah, and how does Jesus make use of it here? Yes, these words of um, Isaiah are from, let me see if I have it here, from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. Um, Isaiah speaks these same words or gives these same words to um, his hearers back then. And so... It's the same situation. The, the people are outwardly acting as if they fear, love, and trust in God above all things, but inwardly in their hearts, they're far from it. So Jesus takes those words and applies them to the Pharisees, to the scribes as well. Their heart is actually far away. Again, you've got that outward observance of these washings, but inwardly, there is no actual faith. They're not actually worshiping God. And, and the way that this turns then, and Jesus is going to start to apply it, is that, as Isaiah says, they're teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. And then Jesus even says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And I think this starts to take us back to where we, we started this half of the show, that Jesus is now going to make this sharp distinction between what God has actually commanded and what the Pharisees and the scribes are trying to do with that fence around the law, those traditions of the elders that you were telling us about. Yes. So they are ultimately building a fence around the law, almost in a way to, to protect themselves from possibly breaking the law in other manners. Um, 
So for example, as Jesus is going to, to show us here in a minute, the fact that they can, you know, give these offerings or, or these gifts to God by calling them Corbin and saying, well, we don't have to take care of our parents because we can hand these gifts to God, um, which is apparently, in their view, more God-pleasing. Hmm. Um, but in fact, it is not, because they are ignoring what God has actually commanded them to do, which is to honor, to honor their father and mother. With the matter of traditions, before we dig a little deeper into that matter of Corbin, Jesus says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Some might hear that, and some probably have heard that, as Jesus rejects all traditions. Is there a, a helpful place for traditions? If so, what is that helpful place, and how do we keep it there so that it doesn't start to move into what Jesus is condemning here? I think, I think there is a helpful place for tradition. Um, the, the church has kept tradition for, for many, many years. Um, the, the traditions of our, our worship, how we worship as, as a church, um, is, I think, a, a really good example of that. And I think what has to be at the heart and center of that is ultimately... Does it serve the the word of God? Um, does it um, take us back to that love that God has for us and the love that we are called to to show to our neighbor? Um, I think what happens here in Mark chapter seven is the fact that again the Pharisees have completely disregarded, at least within this context, the the love for the neighbor. Um, and the love for God, and they seem to be more focused on how they can do these specific things and do them specifically right, and that by doing it that way, that they are showing, you know, whether it's their their faithfulness to God because they're doing them perfectly right, um, or they are showing that they are more zealous than their fellow Jews or the other scribes or even some of the other Pharisees. Um, but I think we have to be careful when we do look at tradition to say, ultimately, how does this, how does this serve God and how does this serve our neighbor? Um, sometimes traditions can, can get out of hand. And ultimately, I would say that when tradition becomes done for tradition's sake, we really have to look at something and say, are we doing it then for the right reason? Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a helpful answer. In verse 13, to, to kind of tie a couple things together, Jesus says, you know, you're making void the word of God by your tradition that, and he adds that you have handed down. So, I mean, and that's what a tradition is. A tradition is something that gets handed down. In that sense, the word of God gets classified as a tradition. Now, it's a tradition that comes from God, but it is something that he intends to be handed down. We could go to numerous places in the scriptures that show that God intends his word to be handed down from fathers to children, from one generation to the next. And and so, I mean, that's the kind of handing down that God wants. And when a Mm -hmm. tradition serves that handing down, 
then it can be helpful. But when a tradition starts to become, as you said, uh, for tradition's sake, and you're handing it down for its own sake, rather than in service to the word of God, which is the ultimate thing God wants handed down, then you start running in the danger of the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus is talking about here in Mark 7. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, and that's, I think, something that we should always look at as as the church is, um, and, and as pastors and, and lay people as well, to ask that question of ourselves, why do we do what we do? Um, what is what is behind, you know, not only our um, traditions within our families, but our traditions within our churches? What purpose are they serving? Um, again, do they bring all glory and honor to God, or have they become, again, tradition for tradition's sake? This is just something that we do, and we don't necessarily understand why we do it anymore. I think this is where catechesis is so important to help explain to people, um, to our members, to visitors, to those attending our adult information classes, um, why we do what we do within the church and to show, you know, the reason that we, the way we worship or some of the other things that we do in our congregations and in our own personal lives um, are done to bring glory to God and aren't just done for the sake of, well, this is the way we've always done it. Yeah, I, I think that that can bring us back then to this particular example that Jesus brings up. In verse 9, he says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And, and I'm just going to say this so that we can come back to it later, but notice how suddenly Jesus is saying, look, what you're doing is not setting a fence around the law, but you're actually replacing the law with something else. And and that's the real consequence here. And, and that's what Jesus is really driving at. He teaches that here by bringing up this particular example of a gift called Corbin. And Mark does give us the note that is given to God. Tell us a little bit about, and you started to explain this already, Pastor Stork, but, but dig in a little deeper to this Corbin and how that ends up subverting the fourth commandment in the example Jesus gives. Okay. So the word Corbin um, is found in numerous places in the Old Testament, but especially in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it's used over 80 times there, um, if you can believe that. And it actually is the word that is used there for offering. Um, and, and so the word for offering there, Corbin, in the Old Testament, is a good thing. It's actually something that God has prescribed that the people would bring to him, um, that they would offer up these offerings to him um, out of love or for need for their forgiveness depending on what type of offering it was. But the fact that they then take this good thing of God, this Corbin, these offerings that they are supposed to, to be offering, that God has given his word about, and now they've twisted it around as a way to kind of become self-serving and allow them not to have to honor their parents, but instead be able to say, well, look, we get to serve God 
Isn't that more important than honoring our parents? Is it? <laughs> Answer your question. <laughs> what do you- well, no, it, it's not, because ultimately God has called us to honor our parents. Um, and, and that is one of the greatest things that God has been able to, to give to us to do, is to honor our father and our mother. Um, Martin Luther, this is one of the things that Luther spends so much time railing against in his day was within the monastic life that people were going off and going into becoming um, monks and nuns and doing other things that God did not command, and yet they were leaving behind the very things that God wanted them to do, like honoring father and mother, um, carrying out the vocations that needed to be carried out. And instead, if you become a, a monk or a nun, you were holier than, you know, your everyday cook or baker. Right. Uh, what Every time I, I come across this text, the, the word that Luther likes to use that is often translated monkery comes to mind that, that this is a, a classic example of uh, what Luther talked about, as you, you said, that somehow what I do as a, a member of a church or a member of a religious order, that makes it holier than something I do outside of a religious order. And, and the, the genius of, of what Luther picks up on, which he picks up from Jesus <laughs> is, uh-huh. is that what makes something holy and good isn't whether it's done in the church or in the home or in the, or, or in the state to use those three estates that Luther will talk about. What makes something holy is, is did God give it? Did it come from the word of God? which is where Jesus is going here. And, and what's terribly ironic is that, and, and this is the tragedy of it all when it comes to traditions being misused and abused, is that suddenly this thing that God had not given them to do, this, this extra gift above the tithe has set itself over something God had given them to do. Now on the surf, and this is the very, the very, uh, very diabolical nature of it, is that on mm-hmm. the surface, oh, that, that extra gift to the church, that looks very holy. My taking care of my parents, that doesn't look, that's, everybody does that. That's no big deal. And that's what's so, so diabolical about it is that on, to the, the eye of the world, this may look super holy. But the question that we need to ask ourselves and the question that Jesus is driving out of the text and that, that Luther gets at and the Lutheran confessions talk about this in several places is what did God actually tell you to do? And that's what makes something holy or not. Yeah, exactly. You know, we're reminded um, in the large catechism, you know, God distinguishes father and mother above all other persons on earth and places them next to himself. Um, that they are... You know, Adam and Eve are the first two people that he places on earth, that he that he gives life to. And the fact that it is from them then that you know, he commands us to, to love our parents, to not and not just love them, but to honor them. Um, that we address them affectionately with high esteem. 
but we also show by our actions, both of heart and body, that we respect them very highly. And next to God, and again, this is the large catechism, next to God, we are to give our parents the very highest place. For anyone whom we wholeheartedly to honor, we must truly regard as high and great. And so, uh, like you said, Pastor, um, God wants us to honor our parents, but I think, again, here within this context, while honoring our parents doesn't look all that holy, it's simple, it's dirty in some ways, it's, you know, doing simple things, and how can that be better than giving our offerings to God? You know, doing the things at church has to be so much better than just honoring our parents and and taking care of them. Yeah, it it always is very striking how Jesus is, he's always able to hold the two tables of the law together so well. And when I say that, the first table of the law being love God with all that you are and all that you have, and the second table of the law, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and we, I think, in our own minds, sometimes play those two against each other. And, and maybe that's what's going on here for the scribes and the Pharisees. They're, they're trying to say, according to their tradition, look, we're trying to love God. And Jesus says, but you're doing that at the expense of loving your neighbor. Those two things don't, they don't contradict each other. And, and here I am, I'm drawing from other texts, and we'll encounter this later in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus has asked that question about the greatest commandment in the law. You know, he, he's the one that ties these two together, the love of God and the love of neighbor. And, and whenever we start to put our own ideas in there, when we start to draw the lines that God hasn't drawn, this fence around the law, and, and forget the word of God that we're supposed to hand down, it seems that this just inevitably happens where our traditions and our ideas end up becoming more important than what God has actually said and given us to do. And we find ourselves in the spot of the scribes and Pharisees fighting about all the wrong things instead of keeping our eyes focused on what has God said? What has he given us to hand down? Let's cling to that and, and all the gift that is there for us in his word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it it causes us to to be unfocused in a way. Um, you know, we there. It goes both ways. You know, here with the Pharisees, where their mind is set on serving God, on giving this offering that should be used to care for their father or their mother, and giving it to God because it looks holier that way. And then it works the other way as well, I think, where we ignore, um, you know, the first table of the law, and we love our neighbor to the expense of, you know, not love, fearing, honoring, and trusting in God above all things. Um, That we don't think that, you know, hearing God's word is at all important. Um, Spending time in prayer, well, I don't need to do that. Um, let me focus on all of these other things. But at the same time, needing to remember that um, as we trust in God above all things and loving him and loving our neighbor means that those two areas of our lives, well, 
really it isn't two areas of our lives. It's our whole life um, is balanced in, you know, serving God and serving our neighbor. And ultimately serving God is serving our neighbor. Um, you know, what can we bring to God that isn't already his? Um, if we, if we love God as, as Christians, it should show itself forth in how we love and serve our neighbors. And most especially within the context of Mark chapter 7 here, our parents. How does our faith show itself in love towards them? I think you're right on when it comes to, you know, we can do it the other way too, where we can, we can put the second table of law and say, Oh, what a good Christian I am. You're, you're just going to church, but I'm, I'm doing all the church things outside and we can, we can switch it the other way too. I think you're exactly right. And and we still see both things today and, and the way that you connected those things together, I think is just beautiful. I, I'm reminded a little bit of some of the conversations that we had here on Sharper Iron toward the end of Mark 6, particularly with the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus, before that text, invites his disciples to come away and rest for a while. They've they've spent that time giving what Jesus had already given them when he sent them out. Now they need that rest to come and receive from him. Both of those things go together. The first table of law, the second table of law, they go together. Jesus always holds them together so well. When we start playing them against each other, that's a pretty good sign, I think, that we're headed down the path of the scribes and Pharisees. Pastor Stork, we've got two minutes here on the morning. I'm going to let you wrap things up for us. Point us to the good news of Jesus Christ from this text. Thanks be to God that our Lord has done what the Word has said, um, that he has kept the commandments of his Father for us, that he loved his Father above all things, and he loves his neighbors. You know, we I'm reminded, especially here in this text, the fact that here is God himself in the flesh who comes down from his throne, lives under the very law that he put in place in the beginning, and he honors Joseph and Mary in his life, taking care of the very woman that gave him life and the man who protected him. Um, and, And this is God himself doing this, and how he loves and serves them and ultimately gives up his life for them that he keeps the law perfectly in in our place, giving us the ultimate offering, his own life, shedding his blood, um, giving his body on the cross for us, to forgive us, and allowing us to, to freely serve not only him, but also to be able to freely serve our neighbors in the different and varied vocations and tasks that he has set before us. And... What wonderful freedom has God been able to give us and allowed us to be able to love one another and in so doing, loving him as well. Pastor Tim Stork serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Chesterfield Township, Michigan, helping us today with Mark 7 verses 1 through 13. Pastor Stork, thanks for being our guest today on Sharper Iron. Well, thank you, Pastor Apple. I really enjoyed it. 
I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Mark chapter 7 or the gospel of Mark as a whole, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We'd love to hear from you on Sharper Iron. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.